kind of crazy. So we'll start with Daniel 1, and you're going to hear a bunch of uh, words that, uh, that, uh, and names. You just bear with me. Say them fast and confident. That's what Pastor Howard always tells me. With an accent, and then it really sounds like you know what you're talking about. <clears throat> In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were... Uh, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azirah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my, of my lord, the king, who assigned your food and who, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he, uh, see you looking worse than the other young men at your age? The king would have, then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthy and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And and, And so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, I'm Howard Brown, the senior pastor at Christ Central Church, and we're going to begin our new sermon series in the book of Daniel. And um, I was reading an article last week, think CNN or something, and they were dealing with the question of does God care about sports? Because, you know, this whole, I scored a touchdown thing, you know, they pointing up and praying and got the Philippians 4 and thing 13 on the eyes and like, if you're a Christian, what happens when your team loses? Does God really care? And since I've been a Steelers fan since I was five, <laughs> as your pastor, I want you to know that he does. 
part of his sovereign will, his providence. Read that Westminster Confession of Faith again. Talks about providence. Um, just okay. Now let's get to the Word of God. Um, you really need to listen to this part. Um, forget the rest of that stuff. Um, we had a great week last week, five-year anniversary, and I think things went well. It was good having Pastor Neighbors here to preach to us. And um, like Pastor Giorgio said, we're going to go back um, about three thousand years. Um, just for the setting of this book, it's about 600 B.C. And Babylon, an empire um, from what we know as southern Iraq, has conquered its way all the way through Israel down to Egypt. And on the way to Egypt, it's taken Jerusalem, besieging the city and the Israelites, putting into place a token puppet king, King Nebuchadnezzar was the general at this time before he became king. He was the one who led these conquerings. And he would be described in this ancient time as we describe our own Jesus. He is described as the king of kings. Understand this is an empire world, which we in the 21st century can't quite understand. This was an empire with many kings and kingdoms, with an emperor or king or small g God over it. Israel was just one small piece of the pie. As a matter of fact, Babylonian literature describes Israel and its capital, Jerusalem, as a side note on its real war to take over Egypt. Israel at the time, understand, it was weak. They were disenfranchised. They were ripe for conquering. And they were ready to assimilate and be re-enculturated. The Babylonians were among the first to practice conquering through brain drain and cultural assimilation. In other words, they would go into countries and take the best and the brightest and most beautiful out of conquered countries and take them to the capital city in Babylon to be with the king. And it was there that they would break and change under the pressure of being re-educated in such a glorious and brilliant place. Understand, Babylon was the Harvard of the day. And it was this cult. It was a cult brainwashing wine and dine three-year Babylonian finishing school for future cabinet members. And Daniel and his friends, just a few handsome, brilliant, small-time boys from Bamberg or Holly Hill, South Carolina, made it to the ESPN top 150 five-star recruits that would keep the big dog Babylon, the perennial powerhouse of the Middle Eastern Conference. <laughs> I like sports, y'all. I like sports. But little did this king of kings of this kingdom of kingdoms know that over him, was the king of kings of kings, right? And the kingdom of kingdoms of kingdoms. And the God of the people of that small little place he brought in to exile. This Middle Eastern player was about to be played. 
Wait till we get in this story. You'll see. But in this narrative in chapter 1, God is not at this time, I believe, seeking to send a message to King Nebuchadnezzar, but to his, God's people, whom, like Daniel, appear to be in danger of being lost, of being hoodwinked and, and forgotten for those of us who, like Daniel, find ourselves exiled, living in what I would describe as an exilic existence, no anew. That what we saw in our past sermon series just a few weeks ago, that even here in Babylon, long, far away from Jerusalem, that God is in control. That the God of the exiles, the God of the small town boys, that God was in control. What we see in this chapter is that God is the one who calls them and us to be exiles. That this God, the one who's in control, calls us and them to live as exiles and the one who will help us survive as exiles. And when I say exile, it can mean, like it does here, being God's people, more specifically, in a God-challenging world where the ethos, the, the driving forces and motivations behind systems and thinking and around us aren't at odds with the Lord's. Making believers feel separated and pulled from and endangered even in their faith. But exile can also refer to our fallen sense of humanity that we all feel and experience, whether we're believers or Christians or not. We are all lonely or in some way or separated and, and alienated from something or, or someone's in ways that, that keep us from being and living whole and free and right. What we see here is that we are called by God to be in a world where much is lost in translation. And so guess what happens? We get overlooked. In this world, it's easy to be mistreated or used or enslaved or separated or distant or lonely or stereotyped because we are all in some way as exiles, as aliens in this place, unknown, rejected or misunderstood. Whether it's in our marriages, the person you're supposed to be one with, even if it's in your friendships or your vocations, or your parenting, or even being a child, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your economics, your theology. In some way, it feels like it's been stolen from some of us. That some way it escapes us. It's unity, it's rightness, it's it's freeness, and, and we are lost to its doing and its purpose sometimes, from its right and from its wrong. Exiles are broken people. In a fallen world who therefore live with barriers and borders between us and God sometimes and and each other and even within ourselves. Sometimes you look at a mirror and say, who's that? I don't know that person. Exiles, even to yourself. Maybe I'm crazy. And this is the kind of world and the kind of people the Lord has called us to be. But not just to be here like that, but to actually engage in ways and places that could actually be dangerous to our faith and personhood. Look with me at verse 2 through 5, and then we'll jump down to verse 17 and 20. The scripture says, 
the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You got to like the way that starts out because Israel ain't nobody. But how does God describe it? Not in the first year of the emperor Nebuchadnezzar, but the first year of who? Jehoiakim. So we know what angle the story is coming at. And then verse 2 says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These these he carried off to the temple of the, his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. And then if we look down at verse 17, this is after the three years to these, or during the three years to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And then in verse 20, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, they were having their oral exams. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. The Bible says what? Not King Nebuchadnezzar came along and took Israel. That's not what it says. It says very clearly in verse 2 that God gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God then, get this, was ultimately in control. The God that was in control was ultimately allowing and calling his people to be besieged back home while others like Daniel were to be exiled to Babylon. This was God's plan. And this was God's call for his people at this time. And then we see that Daniel was actually called by God to be employed in a place and even excel in a world that, as far as identification, was horrid. A world that was doing its best to grind and and strip him of his God-given dignity for its own ill gain and evil desire to control the world. And what does this mean for us? That like Daniel, God has called you and me to be exiles that engage. That means to get all in it, to to be touched by it, to, to be fully present and excelling in our world of employment or relationships or politics or economics and even entertainment and food and beverages that may be dangerous to our souls. And God is calling us here like we are, to work hard and excellently and and fully in it. And what it's saying is like Daniel, excelling at all these things, we should not put half of our heart into anything God is calling us to do. Half of our energy and desire, half of the energy desired required to do the job into anything. God is not playing the first verses of the hokey pokey. He only likes the last one. If God was doing a hokey pokey, it'd be over real quick. Put your whole self in. That's it. <laughs> Exiled. Your body, your mind, your learning, what you eat, everything. 
in this world. Yes, he is calling us to to be completely present, to touch and be touched by the joy and pain. Y'all don't know this? Sunshine and all right. I'm not going to drop the raw bass right now. No, I'm not going to do it. It's in my mind, but I'm going to keep to the text. It takes two. Okay, moving on. But believers, that means believers should be all up in everywhere. There is a place that they can conceivably be. That's how God's called us at Christ Central Church. People want to know, where's your evangelism ministry? Where's your mercy ministry? Well, it's Monday morning at 9. Some of our mercy ministry at Wachovia. Some of our mercy ministry at Bank of America. Some of it teaching a class this morning to some snotty-nosed kids. Some of them changing a diaper this morning. Some of them cleaning throw up up. You know, what is your, where is the mercy ministry? It's walking a dog this morning. And what we do is we have this view of a viral ministry that you go in this world everywhere. Dangerous places. Man, I don't know if I could. Well, right now I might be to work for the bank or maybe I wouldn't be able to work for the bank. But I'm just saying it'd be dangerous making them big bucks like you used to make. Be hard. I have a long car and wide, too. (laughs) Yes, I might be that Hummer guy you hate. And a small waist. Just kidding. Personal training. Okay. And we even see it continue in the New Testament. What does Jesus say when he prays for his disciples in John? I pray that you, Father God, would not take them out of this world, but that they would stay here. This, this is about the time he's about to be killed. Jesus, you're going to make me stay in the world when they killed you? Yes. Jesus came and took and drove and left his people, the ones with the transcendent hope. You know how us Christians can be. If you're not a believer, you understand how we can be. We always thinking about heaven. We have a desire to be in heaven and and to be a be and for this world to be a righteous place that you know that can in its beauty and wonder and joys be hellishly evil and sometimes just plain mean. What's Jesus say about this, Lord? Keep them right there in the dark world. Let them get jobs in it. Let them live beside them. And it means this. We cannot and should not hide from this world while we're in this world. We're not called to build fortresses and then put a church name on it. Or for you believers to build up a Christian world. I, I don't like no Christian world. Y'all know how I feel about this. We just create the Christian super target. Where you can be around all the good godly people. We can play Christian music over to intercom. Christian music. Where we can shop and live and play in a bubble. We're not called to seek or live on utopia or in a utopia on earth. But ironically, we are called to be burned 
and bruised sometimes. And, and like I say, bend in the winds of change and, and the storms of the age and seasons that we are born in and called to exist in. Yes, to look for a heaven and a final fixing of all that is broken within and without one day, but like Daniel and his friends, to seize the days that we have here on earth. And in some ways, be seized by them. And the story reads here, it is conceivable that Daniel could forget who God was or is, Let me explain to y'all something. Babylon really could have broken him. This 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 is a a kid's you know nice little kid story where it's a happily ever after. No, this is dangerous. They could have brainwashed him. He could lose his way. He could have lost his dignity and his worth in this exilic profession and relationships. Understand, Daniel and his friends were learning all that Babylonian literature, the Bible says. They even changed their names, right? Look what the scripture says here. They, okay, where is it? Verse 6, among the, these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Man, they went the opposite direction, Malcolm X here, y'all. They went back to the slave name. And it looks like for those besieged back home in Israel, they just gonna end up being a bunch of proper talking, reading, sold out house Negroes. They're about to lose. If they would sell out there in Babylon, they would sell out everybody back home. Remember, these are the greatest and the brightest. We want them to go, right? To return to the neighborhood to make a difference. No, man. They're going to be politicians. Polish. Got their locks cut off. You know, looking proper and good, safe. They're going to lose themselves in their faith. Learning the Babylonian angle of history, which meant this. They learned all about the obvious. Look at Israel. Y'all got stopped. They learned that it was obvious victory. Babylonian god Marduk and all sorts of had beaten them and all sorts of astrological stuff. Daniel and his friends could read the stars now. They could, they could write astrology. They could do it. They read books and would have been trained in what we would call here sort of like some kind of rich witchcraft. There was some kind of Babylonian voodoo stuff happening. When I was studying about this, the, the way they would train some of these seers, like the dream interpreters, you would read animal entrails. You would be trained to do naturalistic interpretations and even learn spells and everything that was against their own religious culture. You want to talk about new age? You start reading about some of the Babylonian thoughts. We don't know what new age was, is man. These guys invented it. They'd be like, oh, I saw a bird fly on my window. Daniel, what's that mean? Sound like my people back home. I dreamed about fish last night. Oh. Somebody gonna die. You know, one of them things. I dreamed. Oh, no, that's pregnant. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. See? 
If your teeth fall out in your dream, you're a bunch of Babylonian low country, root reading, swamp running. Oh, okay. Let me start right there. I tried to escape that, you see? I left that small town South Carolina swamp stuff, got educated. And then the Bible tells us, according to verse 20, as we've read, Daniel graduated first in his class and all of this stuff. Excelling in dream interpretation. Now, later in the book, we know God gave it to him, all that stuff. But understand, this is not the biblical way to get revelation. Look, y'all, I get up every Sunday and I got this open and we read through it. I'm not really saying, I had a dream last night. Let me tell y'all the sermon. If I did, y'all hit, hit, hit the dog. Hit the dog. Because I'm about to load up the truck and go to South America next. Y'all too young to know about Jim Jones. That's okay. And if, you, if this weren't bad enough, there is some evidence. Now, some. Not enough to be completely definitive. But enough for me to worry that there was a chance that they had to be castrated in order to serve in the king's court as eunuchs. Just, they got their manhood stripped, literally. Man, these brothers were no longer brothers, possibly. That's it, program over for me. Can you say they were going to be lost? They were going to lose everything. And like Daniel's easy for you and me to fear being lost or losing in our relationships or our professions, our personal lives. The ones God seems to just drop you in and causes you to experience exiles, dangerous. Well, on the way to being lost, this happens. Look with me at verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age. The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had pointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this test and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, excuse me, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young people who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And then what we read about God giving them knowledge. And then it says in verse 18, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Why does he not want wine and meat here? 
for one, we can't say without a shadow of doubt it's because food was offered or prayed over in the names of Babylonian gods. Why wouldn't the vegetables be prayed over in the same way? We can't say that it wasn't, it was a, that he would be breaking Jewish dietary laws definitively because wine and certain meats were not forbidden. And it wasn't a public declaration. I mean, understand, this is not, this, this, this part of Daniel, they're not marching for Jewish civil rights here. The Bible says the guard is afraid to let anybody know what's going on. So only the guard knows and refuses to do it and and then agrees to because he like God says that he gave favor to the Daniel and his friends to the guard. The guard would have been killed probably if he had caused Daniel a high price exile to get sick. He kept it between Daniel and them and himself. And maybe he ate what they didn't want. You know, for three years, he brought the meat and the wine and he ate it himself. Maybe that was the deal. So when they go to the oral exam with the king, the king and others still would have thought their food and enculturation program had worked these years. The king didn't know about the vegetables. The king thought, I knew that food and wine worked. And Daniel and the guard winking. Why? It doesn't make sense considering he's about to become, by God's allowing, the Jewish Harry Potter. Okay? Why put the line here? And I thought about this. The reason it may not make sense is that you and I might be looking for the moral lesson. We're looking for the moral line in this whole thing. And this opening account of Daniel's exile is not designed to give us a moral lesson of right and wrong and where we can safely draw the line. In fact, it takes a safety stripe away. And it simply teaches us something that else that's true, that God puts us and calls us into, into the middle of a fallen and evil world, dangerous world. But it does not tell us what to say no to or even when going too far is too far. It is important. It is important to know what going too far is. And, and we will get to some of that instruction and keys later in Daniel. But this account asks and answers a different question for our exilic existence. You see, where Daniel decided to draw the line is less morally relevant here. He could have picked another point along the way. Though the fact that it came from the king's table does mean something in a different direction. Daniel wants to know at this point in his exile, before the assimilation studies get in full swing, what we all initially need to know as exiles. God, are you really in control of my life and this world God, are you really the source and strength of my survival here? 
God, remind me over the three years as I eat vegetables and water and everybody else drinks wine and, and, and meat. Remind me that King Nebuchadnezzar, that he's not the one who gives me hope and gives me strength. That these really smart Babylonians and their ways are not what makes me who I am. That they do not have the power or authority to give or take away my worth and value, that they are not my sense of righteousness a wholeness. Will you give me grace and power and faith to believe and live this life, God? And God hijacks the Babylonian assimilation and answers them over and over in three years of schooling each, each time he ate because the vegetables should not have worked. You try eating vegetables and water all the time with no kind of other stuff. Daniel be all like this, twisted up. Because the vegetables didn't work. God did. You see, it was an indisputable answer and message from God. Yes, I am the God of your exile. That God who is with you and for you. No king or kingdom has the power to keep you or lose you or give you what you need to survive. Regardless of where you go or what the world seeks to make you, or what living in this town, or, or whatever phase of life you're living in, or, or whatever age, or whether you're marked by post-modernity, or modernity, or charlatan philosophies, or, or Gen X, or Gen Y, or Boomer, whether you work for the bank or the knee-busting bookie, when you find yourself taken, consumed by all you do, and where you are in life losing yourself, God is declaring... In the midst of it, I am in control of your life and nothing else, whether that thing or person or system knows it or not, I want you to know it. And I give you grace and faith to believe and survive in the middle of it. And it means that you and I can live in this situation, whatever it is. In that circumstance, wherever God providentially and and sovereignly puts us, that job or or not that job or this confusing and confounding economic time and, and as a mother right now or a father right now or whatever, that we are to live the life he has called us to live without fear, that we'll be lost as his people. Or lost or overcome by the cultural, economic, or career waves. Or be such sellouts that God gets rid of us. He will not. That somehow our exposure to the brokenness and sordidness and spiritual evils of this world would ever make us lose our faith. And more importantly, have a faithful God lose or leave us. Yes. You and I actually work on a call to live and work under in some malevolent and sometimes evil slave making arts of this world. When you go to your bank or your job or whatever on Monday morning, there's some evil stuff going on in that company. But if you are his. Ultimately. They or it will not destroy you or alienate or own you from the love of God. Because in this exile, the grace 
and power and love of God breaks through to encourage and guide and keep us. You and I are exiles. We don't and can't have the ultimate power to change or see, understand all that's going on the outside and much of what's going on in the inside. We need and we have a God who goes. Here's here's the point of the whole this whole exile thing. We have a God who goes wherever, whenever, and whoever his children end up being. When they exiled Daniel, they exiled God with them. See? Daniel was taken to Babylon as an exile. For more than just being an exile to himself. But as you read this story, someone reminded me, it's kind of got this heroic narrative to it. He was called to be an answer to God's people back home or others living in Babylon. To be exiled and before the king of their captivity. To be stripped of his sense of worth and dignity. Daniel, a prince of the people of Israel, was sent by God to be marked and defaced by the evil and sin. Possibly seen like a sellout and sinner who did things by the devil. Whose miracles were a result. Because you can't see everything going on that seemed like it was a result of witchcraft. Who at the oddest times gave glory to God in ways that drew their eyes and hearts back to their God. And for some of us, that should sound familiar. As believers, this is what I need to tell you. Jesus Christ is our Daniel. He came as an exile and engaged this world. He was touched and he touched it. He was accused and marked by the sins of others. He gave himself over to be mocked and kicked and falsely accused and beaten and even declared, you do this by Satan, Jesus, beaten by the prince of this world, the devil himself, to like Daniel, what? To give hopes to exiles. But more than Daniel, Jesus came to actually be the hope for exiles, that the God of the Bible, the Lord and Savior of the life we find ourselves in, that he calls us and he goes with us and he gives us grace and power through Jesus Christ, our our exiled perfect prince. That you and I would not be lost, forsaken, or forgotten. And what so often feels like an evil foreign land of exile. Praise God for Jesus. Exiles, praise God for Jesus. Let us pray. Are you with us, God? 
when messages come on the TV and on the radio that seek to pull us apart. Are you with us? When the one we're called to be married to or the one or the marriage we think we should have has escaped us. Lord, are you with us? We praise you, God, because Jesus says yes. Emmanuel, God with us. Help us exiles as we continue to book to know better where to draw the line in how we live in this world. But Lord, I pray that we would know and learn this first lesson. Wherever we go, whatever we're up against inside or outside of ourselves, let us know you're with us. Give us grace. Something to eat. Something to hear. Something to see. Give us grace through your word, through the sacraments, through the fellowship of your body. Give us grace and the strength we need through Jesus Christ to live here. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.